You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. I'm with Michelle Sterling and I've taken the opportunity to catch up with her at the Canadian Physio Association Congress where she was the international invited keynote speaker. She's the Associate Director of the Centre for National Research on Disability in Rehabilitation Medicine and she's also an NHMRC scholar. So it's great to catch up with you at Whistler in Canada. Michelle, welcome to BJSM Podcast. Thank you, Karim. Thank you. So tell us how clinicians can better manage neck pain. My focus of research has been specifically um, or mainly on whiplash injury. Um, So with regards to looking at neck pain, the first thing I think to realise is that whiplash um, seems to be different from your idiopathic or postural type of neck pain. The inferences to be made is that there's probably different mechanisms underlying these um, conditions. So clinicians might notice, first of all, that people with idiopathic or non-traumatic insidious onset neck pain often have lower levels of pain and disability, and uh, that's been borne out by the research. Um, and some of the other features that we found that uh, d- d- distinguish between the conditions is that a significant proportion of whiplash-injured people have signs of a central hyperexcitability within their nervous system, as well as um, perhaps different uh, psychological or psychosocial factors. And one that we've been particularly interested in looking at is um, post-traumatic stress symptoms. We've done a lot of work looking at the transition from acute to chronic pain following whiplash injury in particular. And uh, we've originally identified a few years ago, about 2005, a set of predictors. Um, And one of these was initial moderate levels of post-traumatic stress measured with the impact event scale. And together with higher levels of pain and disability, probably moderate levels, um, and the presence of cold hyperalgesia, which we think probably reflects uh, augmented central um, nociceptive processing. So we've gone on further recently, um, and uh, we have a paper under review at the moment where we've validated these predictors. Um, and, and more recently, we've sort of followed the clinical pathways of, the, of injured people and found that the, the clinical pathways for pain and disability and those for PTSD symptoms um, uh, sort of mirror each other and, and similar factors actually pre- predict both clinical pathways. So there's sort of overlapping features between the pain and disability of the condition um, and the post-traumatic stress symptoms. There seemed to be some sort of relationship between the, these factors. Um, ultimately, of course, what we're trying to do is uh, see if we can develop and, and uh, test better interventions uh, for this condition. Uh, not, there aren't a lot of trials out there, really, but our evidence would suggest, or the data would suggest, that we need to, um, particularly in um, those at risk of not recovering, be a little bit more proactive in the early stage. So as a clinician, how has this changed things compared to five to ten years ago? What has your work added to how a clinician can manage a patient who comes in with, say, specifically whiplash? Five to ten years ago, the mantra was that the vast majority of people will recover. Uh, New data from Australia but also overseas would suggest that that's not quite the case and up to 50% of people won't fully recover. Of them, about half of those, 50%, will have moderate to severe symptoms. Um, so in the past, it was you know it was f- sort of recognised, I guess, fairly well not to not to immobilise them, not to wear not for these people to wear a collar, but to keep active. 
Um, but even those that, that did keep active in the trials where they compared those sorts of interventions, and there was a significant number of people that still had developed chronic pain. Um, so now I think clinically um, we realise that the condition is, is much more heterogeneous than we originally thought. For some people, a simple uh, advice and, and yeah, to get moving and to do some simple neck exercises is going to be enough. But for the other, for the more complicated patient, as I call them, it, it's probably not. Um, as yet, we, we don't have randomised controlled trials on what we should do, but what we, the data would suggest needs to be done is there needs to be better pain management early on in view of these central changes that are shown to be there by three weeks, three to four weeks post-injury. Um, and uh, possibly something to try and modulate these uh, stress symptoms um, which can be a bit tricky because a, um, a disorder of a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis can't be made in an injured person until about four to six weeks, um, and a lot of people will naturally recover. So we have to be careful about um, not making uh, post-traumatic stress symptoms worse. Uh, so I think, uh, particularly clinicians in primary care, GPs, physios, and so on. Um, it's, it's really uh, waiting and watching these patients in the early stage and if the, there's post-traumatic stress symptoms aren't resolving within a couple of months, for example, then it's probably an indication um, that a psychologist may need to be involved. And what should I look out for if I'm considering the possibility of PTSD? Usually by talking to the patient, you can get an inkling and some of the things that uh, we found uh, that they report is that they... Uh, they may be too frightened to drive their car. They may have uh, report nightmares um, and often a question, at least asked by physiotherapists, is of what their pain is like at night. Um, it may be that they're not sleeping at night but, but due to flashbacks or nightmares, re-experiencing the event. So it's event-related distress, not pain-related distress. And then perhaps if, you want, if the clinician wants to look at that a little bit further is to, with a more formal instrument, and uh, the one that I think is quite good for, uh, for primary care physios, GPs, is the impact of event scale, which is a 15-item questionnaire. It's pretty uh, straightforward. And then to monitor that in the early stage, re-administer it at, uh, a little later and, and see whether the symptoms are, are resolving. Now, you mentioned pain management, and there's been a big change in thinking about central pain and peripheral pain. Mm-hmm. So why don't we start by telling us the practical steps for a primary healthcare clinician to deal with pain? Mm-hmm. At least in this condition, um, moderate levels of, of pain and above, so say 5 out of 10 on a VAS scale, is probably the most consistent predictor across studies. And, and in other conditions, say surgery, you know, the pain, is, it's, it's a main aim of treatment to manage pain and bring that pain down to prevent some of these uh, secondary changes within the CNS occurring. Um, but in, in, in uh, conditions like whiplash, there's really been very, very few trials of medication early on. But in view of the fact that moderate and greater pain levels are, are a strong and consistent predictor, you know, we would think that trying to get that pain under control early on would be a prudent approach. Then we have the discussion about how we achieve that. And uh, I don't really have the answers except to say that probably starting with the, uh, the algorithm of simple analgesics and, and working their way up and trying to get that pain under control. 
it, it may be um, non-pharmaceutical management as well, of course, that, that could, could attempt to do that, so physical interventions or even um, behavioural or psychological type approaches. In your experience, any difference between simple analgesic and NSAIDs, for example? No. Well, there hasn't been any research into that, and certainly from our experience, what we find is the patients that come in as part of the, the studies um, aren't very consistent in, in taking what they've advised to take. Um, some of them don't take it at all. Some of them are told not to take anything. So there's a lot of uh, inconsistencies there, and so I can't really comment whether one would be better than the other, no. Okay. And then of the physical therapies, do you have preferences? Would you recommend for young physios if they're wondering what to use? Um, well, the, as I said, the data would suggest that keeping active is preferable to not. Don't immobilise these people. But I think a sensible approach to activity, being respectful of their pain levels, at least in that acute stage, it's not a chronic model yet. They've still got acute pain, like an ankle injury, for example. There is some, excess, uh, some evidence, at least in um, more so in chronic whiplash, though, or more specific targeting of muscles and, and uh, improving muscle control around the neck and kinesthetic proprioceptive type deficits. Um, that hasn't yet been looked at thoroughly in acute whiplash, but uh, the, the recommendations and the guidelines for the condition at this point would suggest that a similar sort of approach would be helpful. But I think in the person, uh, the complicated patient, as I call them, with higher pain levels, with perhaps post-traumatic stress symptoms, uh, that approach may not be enough um, and they may need other strategies introduced as time goes by. And then what would be the role of manual therapies? There hasn't been a lot of investigation in whiplash per se of manual therapy on its own, but it has been used in conjunction with exercise and the trial I mentioned in chronic whiplash used specific exercise but also uh, manual therapy at the discretion of the therapist. So my feeling, and then again the guidelines suggest that it can be used, um, but under the same circumstances you'd use manual therapy in other conditions with monitoring of response and outcome. Um, in, in these patients, the other thing to remember is that uh, with the altered pain processing, one sign of that can be uh, quite marked allodynia over their neck, pain on light touch. So uh, as opposed to hyperalgesia, which is usually um, increased pain with a painful response. So I'm sure pa- uh, clinicians that have treated whiplash pa- patients would be aware of the allodynic neck. So they go to touch the neck and, and the patient reports pain with you know, stimulus that's not normally painful. Um, and that infers uh, um, central nervous system changes because the, um, the, la- the A-beta fibres, the mechanoreceptors, are now conveying pain and uh, due to the changes within the dorsal horn, those, those uh, sensations are now perceived as pain. So it is an inference of uh, central hyperexcitability, the presence of allodynia. So uh, if people are going to do manual therapy they, uh, and the person is allodynic, Sometimes it's not not a good thing to do for for that you may further aggravate these central changes unless you can do it in a pain relieving way. So it often depends on the skill of the operator a little bit too. And so, in terms of the implication for management in that case, I think in in the person who's allodynic is to to try not to overly provoke that and be a little bit more respectful of of their pain, um, doing more pain relieving type of approaches. And, and that can include exercise too, but a, a more gradual sort of approach to exercise, which is uh, slightly different to the chronic pain model where we tend to try and get 
people active irrespective of their pain. In the acute stage, I think it's a slightly different approach. As, and I use the sprained ankle as an example again. So even though in whiplash a lot of the patients, we, uh, majority of them, we can't find a lesion per se on imaging, um, it is generally considered now, I think, that there probably is an injury there of some kind. And, uh, and so early management should reflect how we uh, manage other injured structures that aren't in the neck. And Michelle, you brought up imaging, so it's a good time to talk about that. Mm-hmm. So as clinicians, both physios and doctors, wondering about the role of imaging in whiplash, mm-hmm. you've thought about this a lot and you're at a lot of conferences talking about that. So tell us... Um, well, at this point, uh, generally the imaging doesn't uh, tell us a lot unless, except to rule out red flags. Most of the whiplash guidelines and, uh, and the current ones would suggest to follow the Canadian C-spine rule or the Nexus rule um, in terms of deciding whether to X-ray or, or do further imaging. But I think in, in the majority of, of patients it's not indicated. And what are the examples of red flags? Things such as uh, severe dizziness, drop attacks, things like that. Also, with the Canadian C spine rule, um, whether they, you know, how much range of movement they've got, how much rotation movement they've got in their neck, or whether they've got greater than 45 degrees. Age comes into it to a certain extent, whether they can sit supporting their head, um, perhaps, of course, arm and leg pain, any of those nasty red flags that could, looking to rule out a fracture, a dislocation, or anything more sinister. So then we've talked about management in the early case. Michelle, you've alluded to a couple of things in the more chronic case, but mm. do you want to just take a minute to talk about the difficult, you know, the complex cases mm. you call it? So a clinician who's dealing with someone who's seen a lot of practitioners and they're in the chronic phase right. and there's a whiplash reg- injury originally. Again, we, we don't have a lot of uh, randomised controlled trials to guide, guide us, unfortunately. Um, there uh, have been trials again of specific type exercise uh, for the neck and and then another another Australian trial from Sydney looking at more general and more functional return to activity type approach and both got very similar effects Uh, but they weren't outstanding so uh, certainly that that's the place to start again is to keep these people active and and so on um, but there comes a time, of course, when you've got to realise that we realise that that's that's not the be all and end all. Um, and I and I should mention, to be fair, there are some trials uh, with the old radio frequency neurotomy, which is quite a controversial area. Um, but some trials have shown that to be beneficial in patients where they can clearly identify that there's a zygopophyseal joint involved using um, double-blind placebo-controlled blocks. And in certain patients, that's probably indicated. In others, where we can't tell uh, that there's a zygopophyseal joint involved and there could be other tissues or multiple structures that potentially were injured originally, um, then I think we, we need to move to probably add the old catch-crover multidisciplinary approach um, but in these people, I think we need to, again, consider something that hasn't been considered often before, and that's the post-traumatic stress uh, disorder. Our data would indicate that 25% of those in the chronic stage would have uh, possibly have a probable diagnosis of, of PTSD. Yes, I want to expand on that because a lot of clinicians aren't used to thinking about the psychologist or they haven't got that as part of their team that easily. So how do they start and what's been your experience on bringing this part of the team into play? It can can be difficult Um, and uh, I think uh, 
some of the psychologists perhaps aren't as familiar with uh, the PTSD being a feature of whiplash. Um, so what we suggest and what we do is uh, talk to whoever the primary care person is, the GP or the physio, talk to the psychologist and let them know what it is that they think you know, from their evaluation is going on. The other issue, of course, is approaching the patient about it, which sometimes can be a little bit difficult. You don't want to give the patient the wrong idea and they often feel like people are dismissing their condition uh, and, and saying it's all in their head, that, that type of um, situation. But I think with uh, post-traumatic stress symptoms, I don't, I don't find it as difficult um, as opposed to, say, pain-related psychological issues in that the, the person's often not driving, it's often affecting their life, um, and uh, and being a physiotherapist myself, I can uh, say, well, I'm, you know, this isn't my area of expertise to necessarily deal with these issues. We need to, you know, to get you to somebody to try and help you with in that regard. And and the thing that's um, quite unfortunate for whiplash, I think, is at this point is that there is a um, trauma-focused CBT has been shown to be quite effective for PTSD, but not P- whiplash and PTSD. So trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy, it's uh, an approach a bit like pain-related cognitive behavioural therapy. It involves exposure therapy, um, uh, getting the patient back to driving through exposure therapy, through education, um, through trying to address their stress-related reactions and so on. It uh, does have good effect in people with PTSD. So one would think... Um, that it would be helpful in PTSD and whiplash. We've done a preliminary, very preliminary trial of only 26 people and shown that such an approach in, in people with chronic whiplash can influence their pain and disability. So we're at the moment hoping to follow that up with a full, full trial. And what we're aiming to do is pre-treat their PTSD uh, with uh, trauma-focused cognitive behavioural therapy by a psychologist and then to, to, in, to bring in the more rehabilitation-type program. Michelle, just before we finish, um, do you want to just touch on some of the key changes in thinking about pain over the last five to ten years? That's a big question in a way. But, uh, you know, if you can just alert the readers on what the biggest changes have been in thinking about pain that you would say the big trend, you know, just a couple of big trends that have happened in the last, you know, five years or so from when a lot of people graduated from school. Well, if I even go back a little bit further than that, of course I think a lot of the breakthroughs have been understanding, more understanding now of the biology and physiology of pain um, and the neuroplasticity of the nervous system. Um, but a lot of that research, for obvious reasons, has been conducted in animals. So, so first of all, it's understanding the physiology and biology, but also in humans is looking at the psychosocial factors and psychological factors and their relationship. And probably five years ago, uh, that was the real uh, um, fashion, or if you like, in the literature to look at that. To the point where I think people thought that they were the only factors involved if people transited from acute to chronic pain. But I think we're stepping back again now and realising it's a bit more complex. So let's just finish by giving the readers, um, the listeners, some resources. Mm-hmm. Um, where would you direct... In, uh, rookies in this area to catching up with your, some of your material? One, one paper that we've looked at, uh, it's just come out recently in pain. It's looking at the development of pain and disability and post-traumatic stress symptoms over time. Um, and so I think it's showing that these, uh, the pain and disability and the psychological presentation of whiplash in terms of PTSD is so closely interrelated that we have to consider 
you know, all those aspects at some point. Uh, we, we do have a, a website which is actually um, aimed at uh, injured people but also clinicians if they want to look for more information. And, um, and if they Googled uh, Whiplash Conrod, I think it would probably come up quite, quite easily there with that. Great. And that's C-O-N-R-O-D. That's Con- right. Conrod. Yes. And that's the Centre for National Research on Disabilities and Rehabilitation Medicine. What are your sort of take-home messages when you give these keynote talks about neck pain to broader audiences who aren't expert in whiplash and maybe seeing other neck yes. conditions as well? Okay. What are things would you direct them to keep in mind just to finish? With regards to uh, what we've studied, most of our people have had a motor vehicle crash, um, and I'm not sure, we don't know whether this would translate across to, say, uh, neck pain from a sporting injury or other types of injuries. But it's, I think... It, in, in all patients that had a traumatic injury, it's worth considering some of the factors I've mentioned, so the pain processing mechanisms, the, the post-traumatic stress, and it's easy just to consider them, and then if they don't appear to be present, then to move on. As I said, the idiopathic or non-traumatic uh, postural-type neck pain seems to be a little bit more straightforward, and those people should respond much better to your you standard physical type of interventions. Uh, so I guess that's the take-home mes- message that neck, neck pain is heterogeneous and to really go back to old-fashioned individual patient assessment. Um, but there's a few clues there of things that perhaps uh, people might want to look for in uh, the traumatically injured person. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. That's really helpful. Lots of good practical tips in terms of classifying patients and taking various factors into account. Sure. I'm going to let you go so that you can join, enjoy some of the Whistler benefits and uh, get out and be active in working very hard at the Canadian Physio Association Congress. Thank you. You've been listening to Michelle Sterling on this BJSM podcast and she is an international expert on whiplash. We know that many folks in sports medicine practices see patients with chronic neck pain as well as sporting-related neck pain and, and postural neck pain and you can find more about her work on the link to the podcast and on the BJSM blog. Thanks for following BJSM, and we're on Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ. Thanks for listening. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.